Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this episode, Elizabeth Newton and Franklin Bruno continue their conversation about the bridge in pop music. Tracks of My Tears is a case where the the bridge is more, it's serving that purpose, but it's also precious in that it just comes once, right? Yes. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe we could turn to an example where um, the bridge actually does repeat. For example, in older forms that follow an A-A-B-A, whereby the B is the bridge, in a lot of those cases, uh, if I understand this correctly, the A-A-B-A functions basically as a single chorus that might be repeated two or three times as a unit throughout a single recording. Yes. Now, that's a little bit complicated because the A-A-B-A form has a, uh, a history of, of its own. But we tend to associate that term, the idea of 32-bar AABA form, with Tin Pan Alley and musical theater songs. I think if you don't think about it, you think it's always been around. I, I would trace it to the mid-20s being where it becomes a, a dominant form. Those songs were almost always written with a verse before the AABA chorus. And this is a, a kind of legacy of uh, vaudeville and musical theater. There would be a section where maybe the joke is being set up or, or whatever, uh, and then you sing the part that's called the chorus, right? And many of these songs were written with multiple verses and then alternating with the chorus. Eventually, songwriters like uh, Gershwin or Rodgers and Hart and Kern started paying more attention to the chorus at the expense of the verse with the effect that pop recordings would not record the verse. And then this also happened in jazz practice. Almost all the songs we think of as jazz standards, like Body and Soul, there's some other section, but you never hear it. Yeah, that gets gets dropped in favor of what in jazz is called a head arrangement. You play the, the melody or a paraphrase of the melody first, and then there's a series of solos over the 32 bar cycle, but you never go to this other verse section. So basically jazz musicians use the, the AABA chorus as a sort of jumping off point for a series of uh, cycles in that form. And if the thing you started with has a bridge, well, you're going to go to the bridge changes every so often in the solo too. So yes, you do hear the bridge multiple times. And I would point out that lots of songs that didn't come directly from White Tin Pan Alley writers, like lots of Duke Ellington uh, and Billy Strayhorn uh, songs or Monk's compositions, often in this period, once it became the dominant commercial form, it was used uh, widely in jazz composition. And the AABA form, often without a verse, does survive into rhythm and blues and early rock and roll, certainly uh, Buddy Holly or the Everly Brothers, and and also country. Yeah, like we, um, we've spoken about your cheating heart, mm-hmm. which... Uh, it brings a, a lot of these features together. It's A-A-B-A, where the B is the bridge, just a short bridge. And then that that whole A-A-B-A is repeated later in the tune, mm-hmm. right? And yes, including, uh, on, the, on the record, certainly, yeah. Yeah, and then with just sections from that excerpted as well as the basis for solo material, to be like the chords to be played underneath the solo. Right. So I'll... I'll uh, bring that one up here. 
is a case for me where if I were just in a state of distracted listening, maybe had this on in the background and I was doing chores, I would just hear that whole section as um, as a series of rep- of just straight straight up repetitions, in part because I tend to be, like in my musicology work, I tend to be focusing on lyrics and on rhyme and poetry. And so I would just, I would hear the repetition of the rhyme scheme Mm-hmm. And I might, I, I might just hear that. Uh, I might uh, not having my ear drawn to the changes. I might just uh, skim over that five of five that happens over the bridge. And right, but you this, do hear it when when it's pointed out. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely okay. hear it when it's pointed out, and I hear that five of five, which is something that um, one of my favorite songwriters, Elliot Smith, he brings out that move a lot. Um, not necessarily mm-hmm. in bridges, but it adds a lot of richness and a lot of direction but my experience with the song it made me think of something that you talk about in your book um, which is this tendency among certain critics and or among certain scholars who are writing about bridges to minimize the bridge or kind of as you say explain away the bridge and Mm -hmm. I can just totally see how that's something that's easy to do and I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about that let me just say a couple things about the record and then then answer that more generally so yes, this is a 32-bar AABA song with some harmonic contrast at the bridge. As you implied, really, there are four chords in the song. All of the A sections, by which I mean the first eight bars, the second eight bars, and the last eight bars, right? You're only going to hear the one, four, and five. And uh, another thing, since you mentioned lyrics, notice that your cheating heart, the title, appears in the first two lines, your cheating heart will make you weep, and then it appears again at the end of the second A section, your cheating heart will tell on you. And that whole 16 bars forms, I guess someone would say, a double period. Then you get two lines, when tears come down like fall and rain, you'll toss around and call my name. 
only section where the title doesn't appear. So there is a there is a lyrical contrast in how much emphasis there is on the central image of the song. Then you end, you'll walk the floor the way I do, and then you repeat, your cheating heart will tell on you. So you bring back the main material. So lyrically, there is enough contrast for, for, for me to uh, fit it into my general categories there, right? But on the other hand, it is very much the case that the prosody of the song is utterly constant. We could talk about what Hank Williams adds with his phrasing, but every section of that, every phrase of that song is four notes, four syllables, ending on the downbeat, right? It's three quarter notes to the downbeat. It's bone simple in a good way. And the only contrast is created, well, the, the melody changes with the support of a different order of chords at the bridge, at the B section, at when tears come down. And there we go, uh, four, one, two, five. And that's the only section that ends on the dominant. And as you say, it's got a five of five or an applied dominant, right? A D or maybe D seventh. So you get this little bit of a circle of fifth gesture going back into the A section or main section. You get a two, five, one. And notice this is just by adding one chord. It, it, it flies right by. And it doesn't violate our sense that country music is supposed to be made out of sort of elemental musical materials, right? It's crafted, but it's not drawing attention to itself the way that, say, Jerome Kern making some weird enharmonic turn in the end, in the middle of uh, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And this is why, by the way, I'm not in any way mocking or making fun of the fact that the bridge chords in We Are Never Getting Back Together are the same as the rest of the chords. This is just the harmonic idiom of the period, the way that certain chord loops and progressions have been the harmonic idioms of other periods, or that the 12-bar blues template determines a huge chunk of a genre or, or what have you, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, no criticism implied in terms of simplicity or complexity or anything like that. I took a class once about uh, sonata form, and we talked mm -hmm. about the kind of details about all these 19th century debates among uh, scholars of that time about, about sonata form and what was significant about it. And um, you found some uh, people privileging thematic repetition and or variation mm -hmm. or contrast, and then you found other people privileging harmonic uh, variation or repetition or contrast as the drivers of significance in, in that form. And that makes me think of this issue of bridges, like thinking about um, the Hank Williams case with that slight harmonic variation on the bridge, as opposed to um, the Taylor Swift tune, where, as you say, the, the chords remain the same, even though there's other uh, mm -hmm. variation happening and so I guess like would you say is it just a matter of opinion in terms of what a person as a listener or critic is privileging I'm tempted to say that people with you know a certain kind of musicological or especially music theoretical ear are maybe likely to start um, getting excited about the fact that there's interesting harmonic variation or a modulation or something like that right there's a little bit of a prejudice in favor of that. And look, we know that there are contemporary debates about what that privileging means, right? 
So that's something I'm careful not to. I think it has to be part of the story. Harmony has to be part of the story. But yes, you could focus more on melody. You could focus more on texture and, and timbre. I mean, different tools for different songs uh, and different styles. Because if, if you listen to uh, Your Cheating Heart and you're looking for a drop at the bridge, if you're looking for a big production change, no, there's a band playing in front of a mic. Although something that happens is that in the bridge, uh, I believe it's the lap steel that's answering him. And then when it goes back to the A section, the main response instrument is the fiddle. So the most general things I would say, uh, without trying to privilege any particular parameter, is that the way that a bridge uh, works is that some elements are going to be contrastive and some are going to continue or be held constant, except in the most extreme cases where there's almost a song within a song or a, an edit like In a Day in the Life or Joni Mitchell's uh, Harry's House, which has a whole another jazz tune. Basically, it has a cover <laughs> of a Lambert Hendricks and Ross song in the middle of the song and then goes back mm -hmm. to her thing. Yes, you can do that. You can change everything. But most of the time, you're going to change some things. And since you brought up different parameters, this isn't a topic I don't think we're going to be able to get into deeply today. I mean, you may say, what about rhythm? Well, I mentioned that stop time, rhythm arrangements, mm -hmm. there's a different kind of syncopation in the bridge of Tracks of My Tears. Another large category that you could talk about is the breakdown. And maybe this is part of the history leading to what we now call the drop. I mean, a breakdown sort of classically in a funk tune being where almost everything except the percussion and drums leaves. Harmonic content is not the point usually instrumental maybe you get chanting or exhortation in james brown and then eventually maybe the bass comes back and if it's a breakdown it builds back up right you wouldn't call it a breakdown if on the other side of it you weren't going back to the original groove so for me there is some sort of broad continuity in terms of being a contrasting middle section even though the techniques being used for a harmonically modulating bridge, the bridge of, a, of, like I said, a Jerome Kern, or for that matter, Beatles song, as opposed to a breakdown in the funk sense, or mm. a, a bridge like Sex Machine by James Brown, which of, mm. of course is one of the, the most famous bridges, and I do spend quite a bit of time on it. He asks the band, should I take them to the bridge? Should I take them right. to the bridge? Like four times. And then the groove suddenly changes. There is a key change. The guitar riff goes from E seventh to A, uh, sorry, E ninth to A ninth. There's some difference in the patterns, and eventually James Brown says, "Hit it like you did at the top." I think are the exact words. Mm -hmm. And then you get some horn hits, and you go back to the A groove, right? So he calls it a bridge. So I'm going to call it a bridge, right? But it's it's not a not an A A B A song, and mm -hmm. it's not exactly a verse chorus verse song either. Franklin, could you tell us about an early instance of bridge in song form? Sure. I am nervous about being someone who makes claims about the first of something, right? I think like the first rock and roll record, you know, is, is kind of a parlor game is a silly question. So similarly with the first bridge, I will say that I think you can find the structure before the term is in use. It really starts as a sort of professional sort of shop talk term and in fact my understanding is that songwriters were calling the same section the release 
earlier on. So whether the songwriter called it a bridge at the time is not the only, you know, the only issue here. And also you have the English middle eight, which is an English synonym, whether it's eight bars or not. I mean, there's A-A-B-A form in folk ballads, <laughs> in some some versions of, of melodies Cecil Sharp took down or something, or, or uh, Greensleeves or uh, hymns and Christmas carols and all that, right? Uh, but I think that the the innovation the the moment that's important in american popular music and it gets the story that i'm talking about started is the combination of some degree of harmonic contrast somewhat different chords and different prosody different rhyme scheme so mm. maybe some sections are just a lot like each line rhymes with the rest of it except in the middle it's a couplet Right, like a limerick. I mean, a limerick is often something that I use to get people onto this. A A B B A is the rhyme scheme, and the B B is shorter. Okay, that's kind of what a lot of early bridges are, and you can find this in folk forms. You can find this at sixteen bar length. For me, the thirty-two bar song, and especially among songs that there's some chance that you may have heard today because it has a long performance history is a song called I Ain't Got Nobody. Let's let's play a couple versions, and then I do want to say something about the weird publication history of this song. Is this a case of this 
uh, song form that you talked about earlier where we have an AABA chorus that's that would have been um, prefaced by a, a verse? Yes, on both of those recordings, if you played them from the start, yes, if you played either of those records from the start, you'd hear a long, fairly wordy verse about the romantic situation and why the singer is, is so lonely and so on. And then you get that AABA chorus. And I think on at least one of them, you hear another verse and then another chorus. And that would have been a typical teens or uh, 20s recording style. To get clear on, on what we just heard, we just heard the first recording of I Ain't Got Nobody at 1916 by a white singer named Marion Harris, who at the time would have been understood in the record industry as a blues singer. And I, you can't see my my scare quotes. But she was actually the first person to record a vocal rendition of W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues. And then we heard Bessie Smith's version of the same song from 1925. And we can say whatever we like about the difference in vocal approach and what you think is expressive and how those things function. What I want to focus on is what song they're both singing is and the fact that they're not singing it exactly <laughs> the, the same way. I Ain't Got Nobody it has this tangled uh, history. A pair of songwriters, and this is easy easy to get confused about, Charles Warfield and David Young. Charles Warfield was a, a ragtime pianist who had been around maybe since Scott Joplin days. They copyrighted a song called I Ain't Got Nobody and Nobody Cares For Me, apparently in 1914. And then Spencer Williams and Dave Payton wrote a song called I Ain't Got Nobody Much, in 1915. Okay, that one was published with a credit to the white publisher. All four of these musicians, by the way, I forgot to say, are African-American. This is, this is an African-American popular song. It would have been categorized at the time as popular blues. It would have been sung in black vaudeville or in black musical theater. In fact, it was published in Chicago. It's not directly a product of Tin Pan Alley. It's certainly a professional and commercial product, but it's not coming out of the world that we think of AABA form as being associated with. It, it's a little bit earlier. It's notice, like I said, 1915, Gershwin is not publishing yet. Uh, Berlin is, Irving Berlin is, but Alexander's Ragtime Band is in a different form, is in an ABAC form, no bridge. So that's why I'm, I, I focus on this song. It's a really interesting early example of an AABA song by professional African-American writers associated with jazz and ragtime that also has this quality of combining melodic and prosodic or rhythmic contrast at the bridge. The lyrics to the original Warfield Young version, the first publication, is just, I ain't got nobody and nobody cares for me. That's eight bars. That's A. And the hook of the song is really the, I ain't got no but, is the descending chromatic thing, right? That's the memorable thing in the song. And then that's why I'm sad and lonely. Say, won't you get a chance with me? Second A section. Then you get this shorter couplet. Because I'll sing sweet songs all the time if you will be a pal of mine. And then you just repeat, kind of like in your cheating heart, you repeat the first line. Because I ain't got nobody and nobody cares for me. So the contrast, the, the denser rhyme scheme, the different syllable count, that's cordoned off in the, in the B section or, or bridge. The Spencer Williams song that was also published, and both songs were published. <laughs> and in fact, both copyrights were bought by the same publisher so no one would sue each other. And Spencer Williams, because he stayed in the business, now tends to be 
credited with the song, but who knows, right? In that version, if you look at the sheet music, the bridge becomes, I'll sing sweet, and then there's a rest. I'll sing sweet, love songs, honey, all the time. If you'll come and be my sweet baby mine. There's these gaps in the melody that aren't present in the, the other publication. And my theory about this is that it's less regular, it's less metrically regular, and I think it's a kind of notational device for indicating what might have been a more improvisatory approach. It's very mild, it's not heavily syncopated, but it is indicating, oh, put some, put some breaths in this line, don't sing it lyrically, start on the second beat, and so on. And what's interesting is that if you listen to those records closely and you, you know the publications, neither Marion Harris nor Bessie Smith sings the song exactly as written. Marion Harris, uh, she sings My Sweet Daddy Mine a couple times, which is not in the printed lyric. And this is obviously a racialized white blues kind of gesture. And Bessie Smith, on the other hand, sings, uh, I'll sing good songs instead of sweet songs all the time. And at the end, she says, if someone will be a pal of mine, she sings a pal of mine, which is in the, the more obscure version of the song. And the point I want to make about that, not just, I, I don't, it's not, not to be pedantic about, uh, about different details, though I'm certainly capable of that. It's that in this case, the bridge is sort of fungible. There are all these possible variations on how it's approached, both as to what the exact lyric is, how it's treated, what the rhythmic approach is. It's not radically different. There's a sense in which we want to say, oh, same song, right? To sing I Ain't Got Nobody, you got to sing the chromatic descending thing in the, in the main sections, right? Otherwise, no one knows what song it is. But this bridge, you could do a whole lot with it. And if we played other versions by Louis Armstrong or Fats Waller or maybe even more famously at this point, Louis Prima's medley with uh, just a gigolo, which I think has been in tons of movies, and then David Lee Roth's cover of the Louis Prima version in the 80s, you will hear even more dramatic, you know, you might say distortions or improvisations on uh, what this written bridge is. So it's been a really fecund vehicle for, for performers. Let's take a listen to the Fats Waller version and hear what he does with it. I think you love some baby all the time. Provide, 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 provide you be a good personal friend of mine. But right now, I ain't got nobody, nobody much, nobody cares for me. Bring it on out there, yeah. Characteristically, Fats Waller plays fast and loose, right, with the lyrics. And notice, uh, I think, I want to say it's 1933, it might be 1935, but notice the song is already 16, 17 years old at this point, so everyone knows it. Uh, songs had maybe longer shelf lives sometimes, songs as songs as opposed to particular recordings. They were recorded many times, and so no one was confused what is Fats Waller singing, right? But he he sings, what is it? Providin', providin', providin'. Very syncopated on those. Crams in, you know, you be a very good personal friend of mine or whatever it is exactly. And by the way, I will point out that when he gets back to the A-line, he sings, I ain't got nobody. And then he interjects, nobody much. Seeming to me to refer to the title 
of one of the early publications that nobody sings, right? So I feel like both for him and Bessie Smith, I think there must have been awareness of multiple versions of the songs. It'd be fascinating to know. You don't know who performed these songs in vaudeville either. So I'm, I've never heard the term. Did you say it was popular blues? People use different terms. People would also say vaudeville blues, which is to say published blues based on notated songs, usually in the W.C. Handy mm -hmm. tradition that were commercially recorded first by uh, white bands and singers and then after 1920, after starting with Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues by uh, black singers, mostly women. Th this category is often differentiated from country blues, acoustic blues, the 12-bar tradition that, you know, however long it existed orally, begins to be recorded, you know, with people like Blind Lemon Jefferson in the, the later 1920s. And this is a kind of urban-rural divide. And, of course, 12-bar blues, well, there's a bridgeless form, right? Mm. Uh, it's strophic. You sing the structure several times, maybe more times live than on record. And it does contrast with these AABA forms that are more associated with the popular and urban traditions. But the only point I'm pressing is that this shouldn't be seen, in my view, as entirely something like an African-American versus Anglo-American approach to song form, given that some of the pioneers of AABA form and some of the great practitioners of that form and the bridge in general, from Spencer Williams to Monk, from whom my title comes, to Smokey Robinson, have obviously been, you know, important African-American contributors, creators, innovators in the history of the bridge. So thinking about the bridge in the context of the early music industry in the United States, encompassing these different genres that you're talking about, blues, uh, vaudeville blues, country blues, and the way that these um, song forms get recorded and packaged and sold and referred to, um, to my understanding, by the 20s, they end up getting referred to as jazz, like jazz meaning just mm. hits and popular music in the Tin Pan Alley context. I'm curious, in these years, to my mind, like in the early 20s, as the music industry grows in the U.S., what happens uh, to the bridge? Because we can see from these examples that um, you've just brought to us with I Ain't Got Nobody, we hear the bridge as this kind of almost like freewheeling moment where people can play with um, the conventions and nod back to prior versions. And once we start, um, once the music industry starts packaging these songs and these recordings, does that kind of um, playfulness get lost or expanded in new ways? On the one hand, any given bridge, you don't know exactly how it's going to go necessarily. Uh, there's there's some surprise about how the retransition is going to work. All, all right. But in certain genres, in certain contexts and periods, it's almost de rigueur that there will be one. And also, look, the fact that we have the English have this term middle eight in this whole 32 bar tradition. It's eight bars. You know it's getting there. Uh, it might be interesting the way that it does. might surprise you a little bit. 
but ultimately there's a template. Increasingly, it became almost a commercial requirement. Music publishers, if someone came in off the street with a song and they didn't know what a 32-bar AABA song was and where you repeat the title and where you don't, uh, that song's not going to get published. So the craft issues kind of become issues of professionalization and commercialization. If you start looking at, you know, how to write a hit song guides for amateurs, you see advice about, look, make sure that you have an A section and a B section and that they're both the same length and, you know, things really about that mechanical. Okay. So now uh, this makes me curious. What would Adorno, infamous critic of pop drivel, what would he say about bridges or what what did he say about bridges well you can't see my what would adorno say charm bracelet from here <laughs> what would he say what did he say in the the kind of infamous article on popular music the one written in english with i think a student or collaborator that no one seems to talk about much sadly <laughs> anyway in that surprisingly he spends quite a bit of time on aaba form and of course, he's writing, like I say, in 1941, and he's making an argument that the conventionalization of, of form, he says standardized form, is you know just one of many signs of the sort of bankruptcy of popular music and what its social meaning is. The, the fact that this form uh, is so transparently structured, eight bars, repeat that, do something different, go back to the first thing. It's pre-digested for him. I think he says, you know, the, the composition uh, listens for the audience, right? You don't have to do any work. And you might say, we've been saying, oh, the bridge is this moment of freedom, of, of difference, of contrast, right? Well, okay, but he points out, uh, as I think in various ways I've pointed out throughout this conversation, in that form, in AABA, it always goes back, like whatever key it goes to, whatever modulation there might be, you always get back virtually always through the dominant to the last A section. So it's eight bars that sort of portend, oh, there is some, uh, there is another option, there is another path, there is freedom, there is development, there is autonomy, right? No, it's only there to lead you back to the commercial hook. That's essentially what he says. And uh, what's interesting to me, I'm, I'm not so concerned with what did Adorno mean by jazz. I'm, I'm interested in what he says about popular songs. I think as many things as you can criticize about Adorno's sort of uh, narrowness and Eurocentrism, he d wasn't describing the popular song form of his day incorrectly. He is seeing something that is actually there and is frequently there in songs that people think of as sort of the best of their period, Cole Porter songs. They're maybe working a little bit more cleverly with the formal model, but they are participating in it for commercial reasons. And the, the other thing that I would say is that another popular music studies take on Adorno has traditionally been, oh, he was right about popular music before rock and roll, but then... Elvis happened, or the Beatles, or the Velvet Underground, or Jay-Z, or, you know, you know, fine, maybe you can, maybe you can say that. But I think it ought to be countenanced that some of the things that he's talking about, even formally, still have some continuity in genres after rock and roll, including R&B and country and soul. And maybe the bridge isn't always eight bars, but this structure uh, where you do something you repeat something, you do something different, 
and then you do the first thing again is not something that died out the moment that Sam Phillips flipped a switch on, in some studios. And I guess it, it seems like what's at stake with this is whether that return of the material that already happened is exactly the same or uh, refreshed in some significant way. Sure, refreshed is good. There's a jazz critic who talks about the bridge of, um, I think it's Henry Martin, who talks about the bridge of I Got Rhythm, or so-called rhythm changes in many jazz contrafacts, as refreshing the form. It prepares you for the return. And is it the same or is it different? Well, those are almost metaphysical questions that I, I hesitate to get into. But I do think that what, what Adorno thinks is that what follows the bridge, the repetition, is just redundancy. And you do see, notice in a couple of the songs that we talked about, not only is it A-A-B-A, the first line of the song is the same as the last line of the song. You're cheating heart. I ain't got nobody. And that's a commercial thing too. It's like you want to sell the title. People have known that since Irving of Berlin. But I think in many cases, it's reasonable to say, look, is all repetition mere repetition? Don't you get a different feeling, affect, from Taylor Swift finally going into the last chorus, you know, the shout-along chorus of we are never getting back together after she's been on the phone with you, right? And said that uh, this is exhausting, right? Like, that's the last straw. She can't take it anymore, and you really believe her when she sings it after that. And you can have relationships like that. Now, I don't, I don't want to be like, well, if Adorno had just heard Taylor Swift, he would understand. But I do think a more nuanced or... I think the word I use the most is iterative conception of repetition in general has to be in play if we're going to going to talk usefully about how it functions in popular music. The second time you hear something just isn't the first time you've heard it. And to close, I, I'd love to hear you talk about the most important thing that you've learned in the course of listening to these different bridges and what do they tell us about popular music? I think one lesson for me, and I suppose it confirms something that I believed, is in some ways the degree to which there are continuities in 20th and early 21st century, and maybe even going back a little into the 19th, you know, popular music that, yes, there are stylistic changes, there are moments that people have, for better or worse reasons, called revolutionary, but almost nothing that's happened is not built on something that happened earlier and that isn't necessarily even such a happy thing to say because i do think that all of this music however much we love it or make spotify playlists or admire it a great deal of it including some of the music that that people want to put forward as having a resistant quality it does take place at least in the context of the capitalist music industry and the commodification of music and even the division of music into works like songs or records and the, the way that the copyright system has functioned. I guess the lesson I want people to take from that and maybe also the Adorno uh, or my reading of, of, of the Adorno is maybe don't be so smug about the past what you think has been overcome, maybe the music of, of your generation, and I'm talking both to boomers and millennials, anyone here, right? Uh, maybe it's not the only moment at which something interesting and meaningful to its audience was happening. And don't suppose 
that nothing that happened before this date is worth your attention or that nothing that happened after this date is worth your attention. We'd like to give a huge shout out, first of all, to Robert Fink for sharing thoughtful and insightful feedback on our topic. Big thanks as well to Brian McPherson and to Chris Melanfi for their helpful advice. And finally, thank you to Jennifer Beavers, Megan Lyons, Katrina Rausch, and the rest of the SMT pod for producing this awesome series. Visit our website for supplemental materials related to this episode at smt-pod.org. And join in the conversation by tweeting us your questions and comments at smt underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zhang Chen Lu, with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>